It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Alison Rudd of The Times and John Cross of The Daily Mirror. We've done our bit over a long season. Now it's over to you, the listeners and the viewers. This is your programme framed by your questions. Nothing is off limits. We'll start with a fallout from Kiev. Simon McGuinness wonders what the future holds for Gareth Bale and Cristiano Ronaldo. Let's take Bale first, Ali. What do you think? I think it's really interesting that most people who um, listened to Bale's comments afterwards decided it was rehearsed. He'd been given his lines to say. He said them over and over again about his decisions on his future, very measured. And I do wonder whether that he had several scripts depending on what part he played in the final because he couldn't possibly have known he was going to score a worldie and people are hailing it as the greatest Champions League goal of all time. What would you have said if he'd come on with 10 minutes to go and done nothing at all? It's, it's, it's interesting and I think... He's suddenly again in the shop window. He has been throughout his career, actually, uh, in the shop window. Anyone thinking of, can we prize Bale away from Real Madrid? They've got, they must not think only about that wonderful goal. And it was a wonderful goal. But he's, his performances have been sporadic. He's been unlucky with injury. He's been unlucky with the management. He's not seen as someone who's integral to the Real Madrid team. And if you're thinking about... If he's thinking about his future and other clubs are thinking, is he prizable away, why is that? Is it simply that Zinedine Zidane um, has a problem with him? Or is it that Bale just doesn't fit into that team? Is it a team that's all about Ronaldo's ego and therefore Bale might unsettle it? What would you be getting with Bale? And then you start thinking about what what would Bale want to give you? And all the reports are that he's so happy in Spain. He's settled there now. He has a fantastic salary. His family like it. It was an upheaval and many people said he couldn't, he might not be able to hack it there, but he's proved that he can in difficult circumstances. I suspect, I suspect he's been told you need to somehow manipulate things so that next season, if you're at Real Madrid, you are more integral to the team. Do you expect him to stay, John? On the balance, I probably do. And and, and just like Ali, I do feel as if um, it was in many ways sort of jostling for position as well as that. I mean, I do, I do. The only thing I would say is that I think sometimes he doesn't get the respect and the appreciation that he deserves as arguably Britain's most successful footballing export of all time. It's for 
Champions Leagues in five years. It's an amazing hall. He is an amazing player, capable of scoring wonderful goals, as we saw on Saturday. In my view, it's, it's definitely the best Champions League goal of all time. Absolutely no doubt about that. I do see, though, that, that he needs to be a little bit more consistent. And there's a reason why you know, Zidane fit, clearly feels that he's not irreplaceable and he's not undroppable. However, I thought it was so telling that basically Zidane, after the game, just hasn't said anything to him in the dressing room, hasn't thanked him, hasn't congratulated him. And this, bearing in mind, was a two-goal performance that arguably has kept Zidane in a job because, in my view, he loses that final, then he's out of a job at Real Madrid, legend or no legend, because we, we will forever and a day debate about the values of Zidane as a manager and also, I guess, this current Real Madrid team and whether they really are good. But history books will said completely different thing but at the moment you, you can't you, people are sort of kind of saying well how can you fall so far behind in, in La Liga mm. what is it 17 points behind first place mm. and the third and and yet whenever the Champions League comes around they're absolutely magnificent and immovable feats it's just it's an astonishing achievement but I feel that, that not many clubs could afford him Manchester um, United well Manchester United Probably could, and it's interesting that sort of obviously Jose Mourinho is worried about the cost, and why is he worried about the cost? Again, maybe that's a, a bit of public posturing because there's no doubt about it. In my view, United are the mo is the most likely destination if he were to go. But I also think if you're a Gareth Bale, why would you give up that life? <laughs> Such an amazing thing, you know. It's I, 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 you know, I'm so jealous. Every sort of kind of football fan would be incredible earnings, incredible career. What you know, the, the greatest club you know, fated as, as the greatest club in the world. You know, but if you're Jose Mourinho and you are allowed to bring Bale in, do, what do you do with the rest of that front line that you've got? You're becoming a bit choked with, you, you with star names. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. And then maybe you just need to move Martial out. What about Rashford? I mean, from a selfish point of view, England point of view, what what does the future hold mm. for him? I would play Sanchez through the middle all day long. Um, I think he's a much better centre forward than, than, than Lukaku. I really do, mm. and that's the best. That's the way you'll get the best out of Sanchez. I totally agree with you. You're not at the moment. You're not getting the best out of any of those forwards in the structure. And maybe that's a Mourinho issue. And maybe that's also something that is in Gareth Bale's mind. Is he the manager that is going to get the best out of me? Bearing in mind I'm coming from a frustrating situation under Zidane. This is really left field. But could you ever envisage Ronaldo going back to Man United? That's, but that's been mooted often, actually. And I don't think, from memory, he's never made it clear that he wouldn't do that. I think he's kept that left-field idea alive, actually. But his, his, Ronaldo's motivation, and I might have him completely wrong, he's so hyper-competitive about what the other best players in the world earn and their contracts... And he doesn't like the fact he's not the best played player on the planet anymore. And I think his, um, the way he talked after the Champions League final about his role in the past tense, clearly a posturing. And mm. he's letting everyone know he's not completely happy with how he's being treated. Mm. Because Neymar gets more than him. But Messi the, gets more than him. But the president now. basically said, wow, whatever. Didn't he? You know, there was no rush to actually excuse him or bow before him, it was, OK, well, fine, you've got five trophies, five European Cups, just like me, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. But he's, I mean, I don't know how long 
I don't know how long Cristiano can go on behaving. Like he's 33, isn't he? Mm. 33 now. It's going to kick in that he's not going to be worth being paid the most in the world. He has to accept that, surely. No, he told us last week, didn't he, that he's going to carry on until 41. And he's, <laughs> yeah, got, he's got the uh, DNA of a, Well, he's got the sort of the um, physical age of a 23-year-old. I mean, He's already just... converted into a, a goal-hanging centre-forward, hasn't he? Yeah, has. he's completely changed, hasn't yeah. he? Mm. He's so different now yeah. from being that left-winger. Yeah. And that's the thing that fascinates me, and I don't think we always sort of kind of raise that enough. It's totally different. He can't, run, he can't be the rampaging winger that he was. I'm not sure that he ever was a winger, but you know what I mean? Yeah. He played on the, on the wide of the, of the attack. And I, I love Ronaldo, but because we need that kind of theatre, don't we? And we need that soap opera. But I just felt on Saturday, I couldn't help but think that he'd sent that message out there because he, wanted, he knew he hadn't scored, so he wasn't the star of the show. So he wanted to make himself the star of the show. By the time he reached the TV cameras, just a couple of, you know, sort of slots along from where we were standing in the mix zone where journalists speak to players, it felt like he realised that he'd actually got it wrong and misjudged the mood and went back and apologised ever so slightly, said maybe this wasn't the occasion to do it. Mm. Surely, as he, as he grows old, he's not getting some humility, as he maybe is. <laughs> but it just seemed to me that actually he thought, I've dropped one here and maybe I need to kind of slightly make up ground. OK, let's talk about one of the other principal characters in the final, uh, Sergio Ramos. Uh, two questions sort of merge into one, really. Phil Clark makes the observation that his challenge on Salah was the upper body equivalent of the scissor tackle. Nick Hart, I think, gets the point. He calls it a dark arts of the football question. Do we, the football public, secretly admire the Sergio Ramoses, the satanic masters of the diabolic? Does the game need its sinners as much as its saints? Well, certainly in England, we do admire that. If you just go through the history of the great teams of English football, they've all had someone like Roy Keane, or a midfielder, or at least a character who embodies that uh, thuggery isn't the word at all, actually. Also, really, but maybe it's, it, but it's not just physical. It's it's a mental thing as well. There are certain players who are able to judge just how physical they have to be, and they gauge the mood of a game. And I felt Sergio Ramos in the final judged that. I think he got it absolutely right. He judged Liverpool had their very best players on the pitch. They had very little in reserve. If you could unsettle their momentum, they all. Everybody knew going into that game that Liverpool would go at Real Madrid for the first 40 minutes or so. And they were going at Real Madrid. And it looked promising. What is Sergio Ramos's job at that point? It's to not necessarily injure someone, but to unsettle, have a go. Let people know, people know you're there. You're not going to uh, be in awe of Liverpool's pace or attitude in that game. And he's done it so many times. I have lost count of a number of occasions on which Real Madrid have won a game and people have turned to each other and thought, I'm not sure they played that well. And Sergio Ramos, he's a bit dirty, isn't he? But with a slight, slight sort of in awe of him as well, because he mm. always produces it. And he, he gets a lot of cards and he's got quite a few red cards in his career. But overall, he judges it quite well how far you can go. So the phrase dark art, I know what they mean by that. And... In a way, it, it's not a dark art, it is an art of football. And we've always had it and we've always admired it. And just because it spoils the Champions League final for 
English football and Liverpool fans, it doesn't turn it into something much more sinister than it's been in the past. Yeah, I think he's one of those players that if he's on your team, you idolise him, you know, you eulogise him. If he's not, he is Satan, isn't he? He is, yeah. I, I, I do feel as if I've, I've written and, and sort of a hell of a lot about him and read a lot about him, which... And I have to say, some of the stuff I thought after Saturday was ridiculous, really, sort of painting him as sort of, you know, arch-enemy number one. I mean, he's gone into that challenge completely committed, absolutely to, to sort of make his mark and sort of almost, what should we say, leave a bit in on Salah. Mm. Did he mean to, you know, damage his shoulder and potentially put him out of the World Cup? No chance. No, absolutely no chance. It was chance. a stiff arm there, though. It was a stiff arm, but he's, he's gone in to give him, right, a warning to say, you're the best player on their team, I'm going to have a piece of you. And that's what he's been doing throughout the whole of his career. I'm, I'm of the view that a lot of... Well, every team in the world would want Sergio Ramos and that sort of, you know, a t sort of player who is not afraid to go for it. I mean, I just think, however it might be, that, that mentality... I mean, it was, it was so noticeable, wasn't it? I think he was, he was banned, wasn't he, for the second leg of the Juventus game, for example. Mm. Well, without him and his mentality, Real Madrid fall apart. And that's the sort of the difference. And then basically, I think, by the way, I think by the time they got the penalty, he was down on the touchline shouting, you know, instructions, wasn't he, for, for his teammates. I mean, he's just... He, that will to win and that desire is something that you cannot escape as, as a player. He instils it in the dressing room. I think he's, he's irresistible. And I think that some of those smart players do exert a certain persuasiveness or an authority on, on the referee. And, you know, it's back in the days of Fergie in the Man United era when they were sort of battling against whoever it might be. But they definitely had a power over referees. I mean, it was interesting to see the sort of Phil Neville admit that recently in an interview, that, you know, they had the edge over Arsenal because they always had the officials. They knew how to play it. That's not a lot different from Sergio Ramos. I, I actually really admire the guy. He's a comedy villain. He's taken over that sort of mantle from Pepe. And, it, it, yeah, he's just, I, I think, he's a footballing god and I admire him. Uh, well, I think that might be putting it too strong. <laughs> uh, and I say that because I thought the, the worst, the most heinous act in that game was the one he got away with that no-one saw at the time, which was the assault on the goalkeeper. We have to talk about Loris Karius. Harry Weatherston, has he played his last game for Liverpool? If so, who should Klopp sign? Oh, this is going to sound bitchy, but basically Klopp could sign anyone and it'll be an upgrade. And I've said it all season, it's been Klopp's blind spot. What happened was Klopp saw potential in Karius. He came in, he made... It, he's young and he made mistakes. So Klopp was adaptable and he brought Mignolet back in and then there was an injury and then there was mistakes by Mignolet. And, and you ended up thinking, oh, my goodness, Liverpool, Liverpool are a team with two very, very dodgy keepers. What's going on here? And then, 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 and then Karius did... You, you thought, oh, I can see what Klopp's on about now. Karius, Karius is, 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 is making those strides, albeit from a quite a, a, a youthful and inexperienced level. He's making those strides. Part of me thinks the, the narrative's too obvious that the final underscores the fact that he, he, was, he is too young and he was not ready for that stage. Only he knows 
did the occasion get to him? Did being bashed in the head by Sergio Ramos get to him? Mm. Uh, what was it? Once you make one mistake, do you make another? A lot of um, goalkeeping, goalkeeping coaches have come out and said you're trained as a goalkeeper for that not to happen. That really should not happen. It's not an excuse. If you make one mistake, you're more likely to make another because that's the, the very core of goalkeeping training, mm. that you are able mentally to forget any errors you've just made. It's, it's unlike any other position on the pitch. You, have, you, know, you just have to just put, park it. So, so I, 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 don't, I think it's a bit mean of us all to try and psychoanalyse Carius. He was very, um, you know, he, he was statesmanlike afterwards and he, he bore the brunt. He said, it's my fault and he was visibly upset. A fairy tale would be that he stays at Liverpool as an understudy to uh, a really good keeper with maturity who maybe has, has done it before and can impart some knowledge. I think I'd probably quite like that outcome. But Liverpool, regardless of what had happened in the Champions League, if they're going to be a team that c competes for the title and other trophies next season, they need an experienced good keeper. And it could be anybody, mm. really could. Really interesting question from, from Belgium, John, uh, from uh, Gerd de Kaiser. Is Liverpool's goalkeeping problem structural? Mignolet... Rainer, Dudek. They were all much better before and after playing for Liverpool. What do you think? Oh, I don't know about Rainer, was he? I thought he was at the peak of his time at Liverpool. Um, but um, and Dudek, obviously. Champions Dudek, League yeah, folklore. Champions League folklore. I mean, so I, I think you could certainly make that point about the current two. I mean, it's interesting, you know, Alison makes a point there about sort of the two dodgy keepers that there had to be a point during the sort of the season when Carrius has made sort of random mistakes, although we had stopped talking about him before the Champions League final, that, you, I don't know, Mignolet sort of offers a little bit more reliability, even though that when Carrius was at his best, I thought he was better than Mignolet. So I do see the point in that basically a lot of it was down to kind of the full-backs push on. Obviously, Lovren, I think, sometimes plays really well. Van Dijk has been an outstanding signing. And then also, do you get enough protection? I think at set pieces, have you got enough height in the air? Arguably not, I, I don't think. And sometimes, Carrius, to me, doesn't look as if he's always had a presence and sort of then comes for the ball. And maybe you, you, you don't get a confidence if you haven't got a structure in the team which can really defend set pieces and I think that would be a weakness for me and I don't think that they've, they've got enough really outstanding headers of the ball so that basically when the corner comes in when the free kick comes in then you're going to lose some headers and in, indeed they do I think but basically I think that will unnerve the goalkeeper and, and probably make him ill at ease for me there's no way that Carries can carry on at Liverpool because I think if he was sort of shell-shocked during the game or after the game on Saturday. It'll be nothing like compared to the sort of after games when he gets dog's abuse next season, which I think is really harsh on him. Incredibly difficult. Didn't like some of the way that he seemed to be left isolated on his own. But the fact is, I just think he needs a fresh start. You know, it's ridiculous that you can be saying that after one huge moment, but it's that big. I doubt whether he could move on from that. Broader question from David Giles, Ali, given the mild end to the last couple of seasons, the Klopp teams burn out? Well, I think it would be... They definitely burned out the season before last. This season, no, they didn't. I mean, they went on a 
a very good run and got to the Champions League final. The loss in the Champions League final was not about burning out at all. It was about having um, not great depth to the squad and and having an inexperienced goalkeeper. The there is there is a um, there is an idea that because his the, the way Klopp sets up his team is all about energy and pressing and he I think he learnt that and he if you look at their stats over the season they've given less they they have run less throughout the season so that there isn't that drop off they've managed to maintain it but run less in each individual match so that they can pace themselves through the season. The, I, I, I would I would argue strongly that this is, this final was not about Klopp just getting to the end of a, an exhausting season and the team not being ready for it. They had two weeks off. They didn't have the depth of squad, but that's about talent, not energy, I would suggest. And really, probably you could invert it and say what it means is, <clears throat> excuse me, that Klopp teams overperform. And if you do that, if you're the underdog and go slightly further than you're expected to, through um, tactics, then when you get to a tail end of a season or a big final, you are the underdog and therefore statistically you are likely to lose. I mean, Real Madrid, they're the Galacticos. They have so much personnel and experience. They, it, they won through being cleverer than Liverpool, if you like, not because Liverpool burned out. Mm. Have Liverpool addressed the weaknesses, John? You know, they've acted very quickly in the transfer market. You've got Fabinho in there in, in defensive midfield. You've got Cater coming in. A lot of talk about the Lyon captain, Fekir. Are they in a better shape going forward, goalkeeper notwithstanding? Absolutely. I mean, I think they're frightening. I think they're, they're amazing. I have watched with all this season about their, their improvement and at times they've been absolutely fantastic. And, I mean, I've marvelled at Man City at times, but... Liverpool as well have produced scintillating, breathtaking football. I mean, when they lost Coutinho, other teams would have collapsed and said, well, you know, that's it now. We need to break up and it kind of, kind of could fragment it. They've come back and got stronger and it's brought the better stuff out of Firmino, in my view, in the second half of the season. He's kicked on. And then they've got a good midfield. Oxlade-Chamberlain has revelled in that, in that midfield. And now they've strengthened it again. I mean, Fakir, if people don't know, haven't seen him, he's a brilliant player. He really is such a good player. He will unlock things, make things happen. He technically is great. I've I've loved him from afar. I've always I've always been amazed. I know he's had injury issues, but that sort of an English team hasn't picked him up, you know, before. He, he's he's absolutely wonderful. He he'll make an impact. And then basically, the key is really, you know, a, a, a dynamic box to box player. Certainly not the holding player, but. Fabinho is very, very versatile. Mm. Honestly, I think now they've really kicked on. I mean, I do think that it will be serious, serious contenders. I think there's, I look at the Premier League team and I think there's two outstanding teams. Man City have been head and shoulders above everyone else this season, without doubt. But if Liverpool can get all the business that they want to do done, they will be up there pushing and I think, you know, kind of with them toe to toe right until the end. Watch this space. Uh, let's go into the World Cup now. You're both off, off there very soon to Russia. We'll start with probably the question that we're going to get asked most regularly over the next couple of weeks. It's from uh, Parikh Bharat. Would a quarter-final finish for England at the World Cup be termed a success? I think most people would say yes. 
Because the big fear is, well, the big, big fear is we don't make it out of the group. That would be disastrous, but it's happened before, <laughs> quite recently. Uh, then you think, well, OK, OK, last six, you know, knockouts phase. Yes, we can surely, surely, in a one-off game, that's possible. And, and, then, and then you start to dream. So it's, but, you know, you look at the FIFA rankings. England are 13th. We're not considered amongst mm. the best in the world. And I know FIFA rankings are are flawed, deeply flawed, but they're not so flawed that you can say England are way above 13th. And if you accept they're around 13th in the world, then a quarterfinal place, um, I think, is, is, is fine. And it would be, if that's what happens, it, what I would want more than anything is if, if, if England go out at quarterfinal stage, they do so in style. Mm. They do so where you actually think, oh, I, there were some young players there who played really well and they were, England were comfortable. Southgate looked like he tactically got that more or less right. He was a bit unlucky maybe because of who they came up against or, you know, a freaky penalty or something. It would be nice for that, for the tournament to build momentum. That rarely seems to happen. So I would be, as someone who's English, I would be happy for them to reach the quarterfinal stage if and then go out if they looked like they were starting to gel and they, there were players there who enjoyed the experience and you could say... Southgate has made watching England fun as opposed to head-in-the-hand stuff. Mm. Nick from Manchester asks, who should start for England in Russia in centre midfield? Based on the finish he's had to, to the end of the season, I think Jordan Henderson, absolutely. Um, it's about, for me, it's about kind of the structure of the team. And if Gareth Southgate does indeed go, and I'm sure he will, is a back three with wing-backs then it's about kind of, you know, who, who is the best sort of off, off those players. And uh, another time I would have definitely had Henderson as sort of the pivot in front of it, you know, and then basically Oxlade-Chamberlain or Lalana, you know, off those, that, that, that sort of player. And I just think Henderson is an absolute given, but then I do think there's still a bit of a debate to, to be had about kind of what brings the best out of. I think you absolutely have to play... Sterling as, as the number 10. That gets the best out of him. He can run the game. Um, and then I, I personally would, would kind of go the three, how can I put it, three, four, three, really sort of route and, 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 and do it like that. So it's very where, difficult. Where would to, Ali fit in for you? Well, he would always fit in for me. And I, I would play him because I do think he's technically better than Lingard. But Southgate, the debate will always be for Gareth Southgate. I think it will be between Lingard and Deli Alley, and I'm not sure that. It, well, I don't think he will play both, because I don't think that he thinks that he can break, sort of make up the team structure with both of them in it. So Lingard is definitely more sometimes efficient, and he kind of can carry the ball from midfield to attack, and he's been really good for England. People really shouldn't forget that, and he's done he's done well for United this season. My my personal opinion will always put, you know, Deli Ali above Lingard. I love Deli Ali. He's he's kind of he's the X factor, and that yes, he can have quiet games if he doesn't score or assist, but he can he can produce. And I think he's he's actually had a dip this season, but I think he finished the season in fairly decent form. But in midfield, I mean, I I would be tempted by Ruben Loftus Cheek. Yeah. Partly because I did an event with um, Roy Hodgson recently. Now he's managed him all season mm. and I've honestly I've never heard a manager compliment a player so much he said 
yes, Sahar was great for Palace, but actually the reason we stayed up was was Ruben. He is he's the all round midfielder. He's got great strength, vision. He's got he's got every quality you want from a midfield player, and he'll be relatively fresh because he did have to have enforced mm. rest throughout the season. I just think when a manager pins so much praise, heaps so much praise on on an individual who did perform well against Germany for yep. England. So I think Southgate has also said very nice things about him. He has that dynamism. Yeah. I just, I just, I just I, see, I would like that. I would like Southgate to spring a slight surprise. And if he's picked a young team, then he's going to have to pick young players, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. I think, I think what is really interesting is that he could play Henderson with Loftus-Cheek. I'd like that. I alongside think. him. Yeah. Because he provides the physical... Yeah. Threat and also the dynamism sort of that, that goes with it. As I say, I do think if Lallana or Oxlade Chamberlain were fit, then I think they'd probably provide the energy. But sure. Loftus Cheek, I think, could complement Henderson really well, and then it allows you to kind of think about doing Sterling and sort of you know Ali behind the main striker. I, I really like Loftus Cheek. I, I do still think it would be something of a gamble, but. Southgate has shown us, isn't he, that he's prepared to yes. prepared to do that. Loves his young players. Mm. Ali, you're going to be covering the group including France. Got a question from uh, Hensmanian, from, uh, sorry, from Sydney. How will Australia do? Should we Poms in Sydney say we'll be in the World Cup longer than them? Well, it's their fourth consecutive finals, but they've got France, Peru and Denmark. Yeah, if you, if you step back and look at the uh, Australia squad, there's not a lot. There's not a lot to get excited about. Um, they've got coach... But but but. Bet my wife, isn't it? I think. Well, I know it was it was up in the air, wasn't it, for a while? The coach they 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 got rid of their coach immediately. Yep. They qualified. Is he is he there? Well, reading up on it, yeah, I would yeah. this morning. I, I would, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. But then, I mean, uh, I think you're right. It's about the players. It, uh, the squad is is thin this time, isn't it? But it's it's the thinnest I think they've had. Mm. But what there is something very compelling about Australia. I wouldn't. I wouldn't just write them off because I. Uh, this is. I think they will fulfil the role that America used to or has done. But America aren't there, right? And what America bring to the World Cup is that's is the weirdness is that it's it's not their country's sport. So they're a sort of tight knit group that are sort of flying the flag not just for their country but for their sport as well. I mean, it's probably the fifth or sixth favourite sport in Australia. Mm. There are there are there are sort of small band of brothers who are just trying to play this sort of soccer and no one really cares that much. And I think to go into a tournament having qualified for it above countries where it's there is passion for the sport. What does that say about the players who've got you there? That's, yeah. I think that says a lot, actually. And I love teams that are greater than some of their parts. Australia have usually always been that. They haven't got... They haven't got I mean, someone like Mile Jedinak in the past has always risen for his country. And I think individually they probably all will do that. They will all give performances that are greater than they give week in, week out for their... For their clubs, and I, what I also love about the World Cup is that you get that sometimes passion can get you out of the group. Just that sort of having that cohesion, knowing you're the underdogs, but giving it everything can get you through. Because sometimes, if you're playing for a nation where there, it seems to define you as a nation how far you get in the World Cup. That's just too much for the players to bear. It's the opposite for a team like Australia. What is really interesting about it is that basically there's a lot of uncapped players, certainly in the longer list, 
And that is surprising, but maybe not as surprising when you consider the bizarre managerial situation that you alluded to. Because, you know, the, the, I don't think that it's particularly healthy having qualified to then go for so long without that kind of, you know, stable structure. Because how do you build a team? How do you build a squad? And so that that's, you know, that that's difficult. I do think that, you know, I think France will obviously be clear favourites, but maybe, just maybe, there's an opportunity to sneak in, mm. I think, for, for them. Denmark, you know, as, as we know, rely massively on Christian Eriksen, who for me is one of the best best of his type in, in Europe, and he's he's their key man. But Again, I would say that... that don't know, write them off. Don't yeah. write them off, absolutely. They're warriors, aren't they? Mm. Let's concentrate on Belgium for a second. Um, Guy Owen asks... Are Belgium facing the same dilemma England had in the noughties, where they've great depth of talent but struggle to play well together? Would it be a failure if Belgium failed to gain any success in the next four to six years? Yes, it's the golden generation, <laughs> which we know so well. Um, and it puts a certain pressure and expectation on this group of players, doesn't it? If you look at it, just there's no way that this team shouldn't at least be reaching... I think that the World Cup semi-finals. I mean, their the, the ranking is, 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 you know, reflects the pool of talent that they do have, and they're in, it's an amazing group of players. It is an amazing setup. Do they kind of have a lot of pressure will be heaped on Roberto Martinez and his, his coaching staff because there can be no excuses on this. They've got the, you know, some of the best defenders in the world. They've got brilliant midfield players, um, and in an attack, they've got. You know, lots of options and stuff. Were you surprised he excluded Nine Godlin? Well, I was, yeah. But I also think it perhaps shows a depth of squad that enables him to. Um, he's sort of a player that, you know, can slightly divide opinion, particularly, you know, in, in Belgium. You would have thought, having reached the Champions League semi-finals, he comes with it, and you know, by the way, played really well in in, in the Champions League campaign. That basically, you, you would have thought he would definitely be in, and he's a, you know, he's an aggressive player. He's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I guess he's Bel might be even Belgium's arms, John Joe Shelby. But you, you know what I mean? He's someone that might kind of be considered as you know, sort of Martinez has got to make a decision for the overall balance of the squad, and then also the makeup of the team. And maybe if you have a big personality in like that and you think he's not going to start, do you put him in or not? And maybe that was the thought, sort of thinking behind it. But if they, they've got to, absolutely got to make an impression, I think, at this tournament. And obviously they, they've done you know, fairly well in, in recent times, but not fulfilled that potential, not even close. OK. Let's look at a few domestic issues. Now, you mentioned Roy Hodgson there, Ali. Uh, Michael Brockman asks, can Palace do a Burnley next season and finish in the top seven? I'd certainly say top nine. I don't know, <laughs> do a top seven. Um, uh, what would I base that on? Actually, it's there's a lot, a lot of water to go under the bridge at this point. Roy Hodgson would want investment from the owner. He can't afford to lose Zaha. They can't win a game without him. So what would happen if they sold him? I mean, then you wouldn't you wouldn't say top seven is at all possible. Ruben Loftus Cheek will go back to Chelsea. So what's he got? Well, I mean, you know, he needs investment. I mean, I think it's in terms of 
history, Roy Hodgson saved uh, Fulham from what looked like definite relegation and then, lo and behold, he's taken them to the final of the Europa League. He's certainly capable of getting to know a squad, building on that sense of, wow, we got out of jail, we've got unity, we can, we can, we can go forward. That's a skill. Um, but I, I, do, I do think it's too much up in the air as to what personnel will be available to Roy Hodgson next season to, to, to be that optimistic, to be honest. Mm. OK, Charles Davis for you, John. Um, thoughts on Graham Potter probably going to Swansea next season. Can he replicate his success in Sweden? Well, I'd certainly like to think so. I do feel as if it's a nice fit in that basically it's, it's almost a return to what Swansea... Uh, looked for previously and in terms of a manager who's prepared to play good football, build a squad, um, also I think evolve with the club um, and so we've seen really good examples of that, you know, Roberto Martinez and you know, Brendan Rodgers and sort of pushing the club forward, taking the club forward and their philosophy seems very much in tune, I think, with, with with the club, and I think again, sort of Graham Potter certainly fits into into that mould. I, I just felt as if he did so well, and he caught so many headlines, obviously for the Europa League, and it was brilliant, wasn't it? It was really sort of kind of how can I put it without being patronising, but a really charming <laughs> story. And you just thought he, he's absolutely got to get a job in English football. I did think the Premier League was a bit over ambitious, but this gives him a platform now in the Championship to hopefully rebuild a team with a decent structure, I think obviously with an opportunity to get straight back up and someone like him, if they if they embrace him at Swansea, I'd love to see him do well and thrive. I'm really, I'd be really pleased if they can get this appointment done. I think it'd be really good for, for English football. Also, it's a, I think it's a nod to say, you know, sometimes if you don't feel you can get the openings here, go abroad, enhance your reputation, come back. And he's done so well, hasn't he? And I'm so pleased he's given but that But that is platform. his only... Job, Ostersons. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe gamble. It is a gamble. Yeah, mm. or he'll need time, won't he? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a much more experienced manager, Davy Joe says, I've been su surprised at the underwhelming response to West Ham getting Pellegrini as manager. Double winning manager, 151 goals in that season, great record at other clubs. Are we being unfair as he comes across as very amiable and respectful? Well, certainly the last two things, that if there's an underwhelming element to the way his appointment's been greeted, it's more about the club than the man, I think. Is he a good fit for West Ham? Why have they appointed him? Is I, On the face of it, it would appear the owners are tired of the negativity surrounding the stadium and the fact that so many matches there have gone against West Ham because the fans just haven't got behind them and it's... It, it, the players look jittery and there is, there's a loss of connection, a loss of inspiration. But that's the board's fault, surely. You look at the way that, that they have ridden roughshod over their supporter base. They don't want to listen. Exactly, that's my point. Yeah. They're, they're, filling, they're puttying over the cracks by appointing a glamorous name yeah. and they're hoping by just making one decision and throwing a bit of money at that one decision, they can unite what has become... You know, an, an annoyed fan base, mm. and a, a fan base prepared to not go, a fan base prepared to jeer, fan base prepared to let the stadium echo. So this is, I think, this is this is less about do we think this manager can bring 
stardust and style and attract great names on the cheap to West Ham and more about, look at us, the board, we are, we are doing something glamorous and wonderful. So you can all turn up and cheer now. <laughs> Talking of turnout and cheering, let's look at Arsenal, John, shall we? <laughs> um, Billy Hush, will Unai Emery knock Spurs off their North London perch? I think it's a big ask. Um, having said that, I mean, I think the days of kind of managers being, even at Arsenal now, with, with this appointment of being able to have been afforded patience and time to kind of build and, and restructure and go again have gone. Because, you know, let's not kid ourselves. They've gone for a manager who, with, with a sort of European pedigree who's, let's be honest, is just passing through. I mean that in the nicest possible way, in that basically it's not a long-term appointment. It's an appointment made on the fact that he's had decent success on, at Sevilla, sort of where he sort of battled the odds. He's obviously had mixed fortunes, I would argue, at PSG. But he's certainly sort of kind of in, in a high bracket of European coaches, arguably not in the sort of A-listers a yet. But Arsenal gives them the platform to get in there, I think. I just feel... The bigger issue for me is that he will need to be so shrewd and make sure that the kind of the, the buys and the transfer dealings are so good. Because in my view, the squad is a long way behind sort of title content, contenders, title pretensions, and, and indeed Spurs. Because, you know, it needs a lot of surgery, mm. that, that squad. Are, are they, you know, they're talking about spending 50 million now. Socrates mm. is meant to be coming in. Uh, and. You've got really still almost like, you know, talking about Lick Steiner coming in as a free transfer. You've got a lot of ambition and they're not funding the ambition. Yeah, I, I can see that frustration. And Lichtenstein is interesting, isn't it? Because he's of an age now. I mean, he's been an outstanding player of Arsenal, ironically, of targeted in the past and not got. He's, yeah. he's, you know, he's a really good player. What will that mean quite for Bellerin? That, will that either be able to give him sort of cover and back up and maybe you can learn from a really good, experienced player. Maybe that's clever management. Or do they think about cashing in on Bellerin, which, for me, I think is a huge mistake. Because there's a player, I think, if anyone can kind of represent a player who could benefit from a new manager and a really outstanding coach, then it's him. And he, by the way, is someone who's got miles more pace than anyone else in the Arsenal defence. So, as I say, I think maybe it's sort of kind of squad addition because at times last season he had to play every single minute of every game, Bellerin, because there was no one backing him up. Mm. So, maybe I'm doing his disservice there. The defence certainly needs strengthening and maybe he will have to take a... I mean, look at Socrates. He basically is 29, you know, and this is the guy that, you, you know, we've all written about for the last few weeks saying that Arsenal were after him because of, obviously, the connection with Sven Mislintat and Dortmund. They definitely need a holding midfield player, without doubt. Often he will play, if you look at the way he sets up teams, it's been 4-2-3-1. He needs a holding midfield player. He needs to strengthen that defence, which was a car crash last season. Maybe he can coach the better stuff out of Mustafi, because he was a good player when Arsenal signed him. I think also they'll probably look to you know, sign someone on the left of attack, perhaps. You know, So it doesn't need huge amounts of signings, because you've got quality with Ozil... And, and, you know, Mkhitaryan, you've got a couple of really good strikers. But other bits of the squad are so drastically unbalanced and leaves them far, far behind. Mm -hmm. So it's a big ask, I think, from Unai. It's a safe pair of hands. I think it's a decent appointment. And I think, obviously, the fans like it. But I, I still think it's, you know, 
it's going to be a big ask to turn it round that quickly. OK, another hand grenade going in. Paul Fry, has Jose's time come or do we just have to wait until City win their first 10 games of next season to leave United in their wake again? Hmm. I think it'll be incredibly interesting how Jose Mourinho reacts to what he now knows is coming. He's um, on several occasions, most notably after the FA Cup final, you, you always have to wonder what the subtext is with Mourinho and why he said it. He said the best team did not win the FA Cup final, but the best team did win the league and they deserve to be in second place. And I think when Mourinho says, well, I mean, why bring up the league after the FA Cup final? It's just, I just found that very interesting that he would do that. It's, it's as if, it's almost as if he's telling people there are, there are two competitions, who finishes first is a given, mm. it's about who finishes second. And let's not forget finishing, you sort of discount City as an aberration of beauty and expense with a good manager, then what matters is that you finish second. I sort of felt he was trying to say, actually, I won the league if you discount, <laughs> if you discount City, which is fine if you want to rewrite history that way. But how on earth do you take that message into the next, the next season? He's got, you know, he's got, I think he's got an awful lot to prove, really. United courted him, were after him, were divided over him, whether he was the right man to create a post-Fergie regime that could to do something. He was a man that would bring trophies. He's clearly not a man that's united the team in terms of style. How much pressure will he be under to make the team look nicer this coming season? These are all very interesting factors, and I think Mourinho would, would say... He's, he is who he is, he's, pra he's a pragmatist. The, the style is less important to him than proving that he can maybe bridge the gap to City. But he, I think of all the managers in, in the league, he probably is under most pressure because if you list things that have gone slightly wrong at all the clubs, there's an awful lot of things that have gone slightly wrong at Manchester United, not least bringing in Paul Pogba, who we were probably at this point last year gushing about mm. the prospect of, 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 what, of, of what sort of season he would have. Emoji or no emoji, it's not worked out, and Mourinho has to take some mm. some of the culpability for that. Just want to end uh, with a couple of uh, points outside the Premier League. Uh, one from Brian, Accrington Stanley, mm -hmm. discuss. Well, uh, I, I looked at it and I thought, oh blimey, is that a trick question? Because <laughs> <laughs> because you know sometimes we often look for kind of controversy and. You know, talking point, and actually, it's a brilliant story. Exactly, and that's the thing. And and John Coleman, what a job! You know, I think I don't know whether you were at the LMA dinner, mm. and, but I mean, it, you know, he was kind of you know called. I spent up a little bit of time with him in this season, and it's a fantastically well. You know, the owner is is very populist. He understands the community, Andy Holt. Yeah, you've got players within that squad. You know, Billy Key has overcome depression. They've got the twenty third. Uh, biggest budget in that league too and they still got up as champions that's a fantastic achievement it really is and I do think that that I thought it was great that that basically that night you know John Coleman w w w w was recognized the the battle against the odds and that sort of sense of community that, that, that you know that you talk about is absolutely there for for all to see they have become arguably now the sort of the model club haven't they sort of you know, for, for the, the, the lower two divisions, shall we say, because now, you know, they've gone up. But it just seems to be, it's beyond 
kind of good players and good sort of recruitment and sort of then good management, it seems to be a real positive energy then that sort of John Coleman has managed to sort of embrace and, and bring forward. There's a real good feel-good factor about, about this club. I think we go through sort of various phases and, you know, sort of kind of, you know, hailing sort of different a, a achievements, but there seems to be sort of flaws in, in, in some in the past, whereas this one has been, has been done sensibly, done within kind of, without kind of, shall we say, breaking the bank or kind of, you know, sort of outing any rule. It's just a really good feel-good story, which deserves... I think, and I do actually think, in fairness, it has received, you know, a lot of coverage and a lot of praise, which which is fantastic to see. Yeah. Another distinctive club, Brentford. Uh, Greville Waterman, does the recent interest in Dean Smith by West Brom and others imply that the club's achievements are finally being taken seriously? Well, I think Dean Smith is finally being taken seriously. He's a really impressive manager. I was lucky enough to spend the day with him when he was at Walsall. There's something about, A, a manager who lets a journalist to do that and doesn't, you know, just lets you listen to the team talk, mm. lets you see how they interact with injured players, players at training, star players, how calm he is, because this was ahead of a cup game against Chelsea. Um, some, some managers have um, a very, very quiet aura, I would say. You know, he's clearly not in the league of, of, of Klopp or Mourinho or, or, or Pep Guardiola in terms of that kind of aura, but there are managers who ply their trade and do so with a calm authority, but born out of love for the game and just not 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 taking any shortcuts over, take you know knowing that the club. And if you're if you're a club like West Brom, who've been relegated, you need you need to appoint somebody who will look at every element of why that went wrong, not not skirt over anything look into every element of the club, the way they do things. And, and a manager like Dean Smith is one of, is, I would argue, one of those. And I, I'm just pleased that a manager who does that, because it, it's so easy just to say, oh, it's because, you know, managers do well because of this reason, that reason, they knew somebody, they knew the technical director, technical director or they had a lot of money or they just got lucky because of the previous job. There are a lot of managers in this country, maybe we're going back to Accrington Stanley, actually, who get where they get the results because they are just pay attention to every element of detail and absorb football, get the most out of players, put them together properly. And that, that you know, people say well, it's not rocket science. Just to pick, It is actually when you've got a, a small budget and a small club to get the, that consistency. Because sometimes, you know, even Liverpool, that was their downfall, consistency. To get that in a, a lower division is superb. Mm. Let's end, um, John, with a look at you know, the story that we're all talking about. Uh, today, Monday morning's front page on the Sun with um, Raheem Sterling and the the tattoo. Um, I feel that's a very disturbing trend that we're, we're looking at here, in one player being picked out for whatever reason. For um, you know, we look at we look at players. We want them to respond to their public. Stuff like this drives people into bunkers, doesn't it? It does, and I think it's a really harsh story on him because I think it's very difficult, bearing in mind when you know a little bit of the background, mm. to sort of pass a, a, a moral judgment on someone who, who, yes, has got a you know machine gun tattooed on on his calf, but I have to say, it's not. There's more to come from that. There'll be a bigger sort of story, and it'll be a bigger message because this is a 
you know, a, a young individual who's basically at the age of two, his dad was, was shot, mm. I mean, and killed. Uh, I mean, seriously, how can we possibly, you know, pass a moral judgment on that? He's got an underlying message on, on this. And I think when that tattoo, which he alludes to in an Instagram post, will be finished, mm. I think we'll, we'll know more about the, about the story. He wants to get a stronger message out there. Listen, I know him a little bit because I've done various interviews with him. He is so, I think, misrepresented by some of the coverage. Because here's a kid who's, who's, you know, I saw him as I left St George's Park last night and just was making chit-chat with him. He's bright, he's funny, he's intelligent. He's sort of the prankster on the, on the Man City team bus. He's good fun. It, honestly, to go from such a tragic circumstance and difficult upbringings, you know, is just, I think, massive credit to him. He's got tattoos all over him, basically, to signify certain things, mm. like coming to sort of kind of growing up in the shadow of, of Wembley Stadium, of Queen's Park Rangers, of doing various things. He's, you know, the basic tattoo of his, you know, child. And he's just like really... It's certain. It's something that he's obviously sort of, you know, he's dear to him. He's not sending out, a, 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 you know, an offensive message. He's never been, you know, gang affiliated. He's insisting that he's never touched a gun before in, in his life. Honestly, the kid has gone through so much. He seems to have been singled out on various mm. sto stories, which seems so massively unfair. And I do think we are in serious danger of kind of alienating players and, and making the ones that, you know, you can have sort of relationships with and conversations with feel really uneasy. But much bigger than that is a feeling that, that, that we're kind of putting too much focus and too much pressure on them ahead of the World Cup finals. And then we'll be singling them out afterwards to say, oh, well, he, he, his poor performances in comparison to his brilliance at Man City is the reason why England flopped again. Well, Honestly, you know, I do think some of the coverage is so harsh and so mm. wrong. What does it say, Ali, about the modern media? Because, you know, I concur with John. <clears throat> Very good kid. He, was, he lives by the values which were instilled in him by a fantastic mother, brought up four children on her own. That's someone, you know, we, we prattle on about role models, but to me, he is the perfect role model. And that, I think that's why there's been this furore over the tattoo, because people saw the tattoo without, before they knew it wasn't finished. And I can understand why it, Mothers Against Guns, is it, is it called mm, that? There's a, there's, a lob, there's a lobby group about Mothers Against Gun Crime. And I can, I can perfectly well understand why a young, seeing a very young man in the public eye with a tattoo of a gun on, on your body given that we're in the middle of a bit of a crisis over gang crime and killings in this country, would think that's, that's a terrible message, that shouldn't be allowed. I'm sure anyone involved in that criticism, once they know the full story, would say, OK, we'll hold back from, mm. from slating this young man once we know the full story. But if you just take it on face value, I do have sympathy for people who are, you know, upset by the image and... Maybe it's all very well saying, what does it say about the media in this country? But the media exists and you have to be a bit more savvy about it. So don't show, don't have half a gun on your body if it's not finished. If the message is not complete, why allow that to get out there? It clearly isn't a good message on its own without the extra information we now have. Yeah, I just... So I, 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 don't, I, don't, I sort of don't blame how it's become a big story. 
it would be nice to think the media was grown up enough to allow space to see how it develops, certainly. Mm. Yeah, I do feel as if, like, you, you're right, I, don't, I can't disagree with that at all, but... But isn't... Sorry, Donna, yeah. isn't that this, though, a pattern of stories about yeah. him which are trivial at best? Well, yes. Look, as a member of the media, I can see it and I can see stories for what they are and some people will go mad about particular stories like, you know, him buying his mum a house after the Euro Man, man has breakfast. I know, and, and basically, I know that that was despite, you know, the, the losing the Champions League game the night before, wasn't it? I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. I have to say, there was there was one story which I thought, do you know what? People go mad about that on social media, on Twitter, about basically by the fact that you go shopping at Primark. And they say, what is story is that? Well, actually, I have to disagree with that because I actually think that is of vague interest to me, not, not shopping at Primark, but, you know, if it did. But basically, it just represents a player who's on an extortionate amount of money each week, and yet he is down-to-earth enough to not actually sort of kind of want to shove it in your face every two minutes, but we'll go shopping at a Primark like you and I sort of thing. You know, it's just he's just down to earth, and that represents him as. And I think that is it. That is interesting, but you know, we could debate that all day long. But I I feel that this story is again, is just just not you know kind of helpful at this stage. And and this night I work for a red top newspaper as well, so it's difficult for me to pass some sort of judgment sometimes. I do feel on this individual one, I think it's But I if, do think if, it's if he had a tattoo of a gun, mm. and that was end of story, that's all he had. No yeah. story attached to it. His father hadn't been killed. Wouldn't you would agree it was an appropriate tattoo? Yeah, wouldn't you? I, yes, I do think so. But I think that sometimes you have to know the full, we owe it to ourselves to know the full context and the full picture. And I think once you do that, maybe I'm coloured by the fact that I know him a little bit. And he's and you know that basically I really like him and maybe maybe that I'm being biased from that point of view. But honestly, from when you do get to know him a little bit, I, I just don't think he's that that kind of you know sort of sullen, moody, you know, difficult problem that he's portrayed as. He's bright, he's intelligent, he's lively, he's got something to say, and he's he's got a good, really good sense of humour. Look, it's not it's not ideal, but I think they do think now he's put it put a balance out there, and there's obviously a, a bigger message to come. I think. I agree with John. Like many sports writers, stories like this make me angry and ashamed. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.